It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hi, I'm Jay Harwood from the New York Mets. Welcome to our Mets alumni podcast. My special guest is Craig Swan. Hey, Swanee, a lot of people don't know you're, maybe some do and some don't. You're a member of a pre exclusive club, uh, Tom Seaver, Dwight Gooden, uh, R.A. Dickey, and Jacob DeGrom. And they will have won ERA titles as you have. Uh, yeah. You kind of feel like because it happened a long time ago that people don't realize, you know, what kind of a pitcher you were for a lot of bad teams, unfortunately. Well, yeah, and I only had a few good years, really, there. And, um, uh, and you know, my best years, again, were, like you said, with teams that weren't so good. And uh, I don't really care about that kind of thing anyway. I know that uh, I won the ERA title, and it was probably the, the best thing that I did when I was in professional baseball. And uh, I just remember that year and how close it was with uh, Steve Rogers from Montreal uh, competing for that for that uh, for that title. Craig, the, the Mets were like thirty games under five hundred that year. You were nine and six with a two forty three ERA. So that's a pretty good year. Did you follow Degrom? I mean, Degrom, you know, won ten games last year. I mean, did you follow him in all what he was trying to do? Uh, well, you know, he was all over the news. So I, you know, I said, oh gosh, that poor guy is going through what I went through. Uh, and uh, he, um, you know, it's just, I, I think the team, I'm not sure about the team, but I think the team was a little better than we were back in the late 70s because, as you know, uh, the former owners did not uh, embrace free agency. And so not until uh, Fred Wilpon and Nelson Doubleday bought the team did we start getting in, uh, free agents that uh, eventually turned into the 86 team. Right. I mean, did you kind of identify, I mean, do you have much run support in 78? Oh, no. I um, In 78, I had um, one of the strange statistics about that, Jay, is that at the All-Star break, I had uh, one win and five losses. I did not miss a start, and my ERA was 2.5. Wow, that's crazy. And I had one win at the All-Star break. Yeah, we just couldn't score runs, and it seemed like, uh, well, when I pitched, I, I always thought this uh, uh, you know, on the positive side. We didn't score many runs, so every time I went out, I knew I had to throw well to have a chance to get a win. So I, I don't know. It kind of spurred me on and tried to, you know, I don't know, keep the other team from scoring many runs. Craig, give me your career in 11 years in the majors with not a lot of great teams. Your ERA was 3-6, you know, 25 complete games. So it's pretty solid numbers for pitching, you know, with not a lot of great teams. Well, I don't know about the numbers. I never followed them. I, you know, me, I... I'm from California, and we were looking to either go sailing or surfing, so. <laughs> right. Let me go back to 83, you know, really your last full year with the Mets, and a lot of, you know, big things happened in the year. The first was the opening game, uh, you know, Tom Seaver came back to pitch. Do you remember him walking out of the bullpen in the crowd that day? He got a standing ovation against the Phillies. Oh, yeah. It was a, it was a great thrill for me, too. I mean, Tom kind of took me under his wing. Uh, in the 70s, and we used to see, used to sit next to me in the dugout and explain the, what he would pitch or what kind of pitch or where the location would be to most of the hitters, and I learned a lot from Tom, and so 
you know, I was definitely devastated when he when he got traded. But then when he came back, it was uh, it was really special. And uh, you know, he and we ended up being pretty good friends and and playmates in, in in Connecticut with our with our squash and our golf. I mean, you're both from Greenwich. You both from community. So did you? I mean, did you? Go to the park with him, or where they just didn't, you know, how did you oh, get, yeah. go ride yeah. back and forth with him? Yeah, we would share rides, and depending on who was pitching and what the wives were doing, uh, we would always figure it out. But yeah, we definitely uh, would go back and forth. And then, you know, during the winter, we saw each other a lot. Uh, we played a lot of golf, and then we were a doubles team in, in squash, and uh, we would play, you know, around the county as a squash team. What kind of a squash player was Tom? Tom was very, very good. He played the hard side, he played the left side of the court, and, uh, you know, it was funny with Tom and I because we did not get raised with squash. We were California kids, and most of the squash players were from the East Coast. And one of the things that would happen during our squash games is the other teams would always call a, a let. If if you had a chance to actually strike the other player with a ball that's going about 140 miles an hour, they would yell let, and it would stop, and you'd just start over. Tom and I never did that. We would go ahead and hit the ball, and if hit the player, it was his fault for being in the way. Well, like all of us, you know, with the 69 anniversary coming up in June, everybody's, you know, heartbroken that uh, Tom's not going to be there, but he's going to be remembered in a lot of different ways, and, you know, we're going to do some uh, street naming after him. He's a former teammate. I, I'm sure you feel pretty good that even though he won't be there, but he'll be a part of the celebration. Oh, absolutely, and Tom was such was one of the best teammates because he was our player rep in the 70s. And so we were, when Tom would go off and meet with Marvin and learn information and then Tom would hold meetings, he was one of the main guys that, you know, kept our team together and uh, gave us a strong union when we needed it in 76. Yeah, hey, uh, Swanee, another, you know, key date was uh, May 3rd of that, of 83, the arrival of Daryl Strawberry. What do you remember about and he came up, he was regarded as the Black Ten Williams. And again, the team wasn't that great at that time. And Daryl had a lot of pressure on his shoulders. He wound up winning Rookie of the Year. But I'm sure he's coming in and in some breath of fresh air to the guys, right? Well, definitely. He was he was so good. And he had he was, you know, a very tall and, and, and powerful swing. And, uh, you know, Daryl was, uh, was a very sweet guy. I really enjoyed playing with him for the, the short time I did. But... You could tell he was going to be something special. And then, and then a month later, um, June fifteenth, Mr. Hernandez arrives. Uh, probably, you know, those two things probably set the groundwork for you know the, the success the Mets had in the in the eighties. Uh, what do you remember about your interactions with uh, with Keith? Well, Keith was just a, a wonderful guy. Again, uh, we played uh, some winter ball together in the seventies, and of course he 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 hit me very well as a St. Louis Cardinal because he'd like hard-throwing right-handers, so I guess he probably liked me too, but uh, Keith was always kind of like a captain on the field. He was always coming in and, you know, letting the players know what, what the situation was, and, you know, with, uh, it was kind of like having a catcher out there, but he was closer to the other players, so he could get his, you know, get the information out, and he was kind of the, the field captain. Yeah. Craig, with your career, um, 83, I guess, like your last full year, you you tried to come back in 84 with the Mets. You were released. And what, hap what happened after that in, in, in the spring of 84? Uh, well, spring of 84, I made the team. Um, my arm was – I had injured it the year before. But the real – the funny thing about this injury, it it didn't really hurt me. It, it would make my arm weak after about 40, 45 pitches. 
and the radar gun would go from 91, 92 down to 80 miles an hour, and I could never get it back. Uh, the Mets did release me that year with good reason. <laughs> uh, but the Angels gave me a tryout at Yankee Stadium uh, about a week after the Mets released me. And, you know, I went through uh, for Gene Mock and, and Renee uh, Latchman um, in the bullpen, and for the 45 pitches I could throw, they were fairly impressed. I went and started a couple games for the Angels um, that 84 season and only pitched five years and had two arm surgeries. And uh, I thought my career was over, but I, I called Gene Mock in the winter and asked him, could I try again in 85? And I did make it to the last day of spring training. Uh, with the Angels, and then was released. I mean, you told me the story yesterday. It wasn't uh, – did the release affected Gene Mock more than it affected you? Well, Gene, Gene, it was one of my favorite stories. Uh, you know, Gene was notably this rough, tough, tough guy. And uh, for some reason, I went to spring training that year, and I started doing well early on and going kind of just on an invite. And the 25th pitcher out of 25, within a couple of weeks, Gene had me as fifth starter. And so <laughs> I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, I got a chance to make this team. But as the spring training went on, we had to throw more innings. And there was that radar gun showing me in the low 90s and all the way down to 80, again, after 40, 45 pitches. I made it to the last day of the season, uh, the spring training. We were playing an exhibition game at, uh, against the Dodgers at Anaheim Stadium. And I hear one of the coaches says, uh, Swanee, Gene wants to see you. And I know I'm going to get released. There was too many guys. And they did not need a reliever. They needed a starter. So I went to Gene's office, and he's standing there in the door waiting for me. And I said, hey, Gene. And he started crying. <laughs> and I had to grab him around the shoulders, lead him around his desk, and put him in his chair. He laid on his table and cried. <laughs> you tried so hard, but we can't. You know, you, you we're going to release you. And he cried more. I said, Gene, it's okay. It's okay. My arm's no good. And he took it very, very hard. And I, I always loved that story just because of his reputation was so much the opposite. But you didn't waste any time starting your your second career, so to speak. Uh, I, you told me yesterday you, you made a couple of calls and you became a rolfer. I became a rolfer, a practitioner of Dr. Rolf's technique of uh, con con uh, connective tissue manipulation, if you want to get fancy. Could you, what, what exactly, pick up my ignorance, what exactly is a rolfer? I mean, what, what do you do? A rolfer is someone who goes to, to uh, well, only place in the States, you have to go to Boulder, Colorado. It's about a two-year program. And what you do is you learn, you learn a lot of what people that do yoga learn as far as body alignment and posture and things like that. And then you're taught how to use your fists and your elbows to work on this connective tissue, which is basically the same stuff as the tendons, the white tissue in our body that comes and surrounds each muscle. But at the ends of the muscle, it forms these tendons. And so we kind of a geometric shape, uh, you know, looking at a person and seeing where they're out of a line, we try to lengthen the soft tissue that will put them back in line and then also teach them simple movement instructions so they can do that in a more efficient and less stressful way. Did you have to go to school, correct, for that, or, or you did, right? I mean, yeah, they made me go to uh, when I asked them, uh, you know, what do I? I was thirty-four. What do you need to do to become a rolfer? Uh, the president of the Rolf Institute says, "Well, what have you been doing?" I said, "Well, I've been throwing a baseball. I'm trying to throw it low in the strike zone." And he said, "What?" 
I said, well, I was a pitcher. He goes, when did you go to school last? I said, oh, 1972. And this was 84. He goes, okay, you need to get a year of anatomy and physiology at the college level before you come uh, apply to the Rolf Institute. So within a week, I was at Fairfield University and taking uh, the summer courses, um, accelerated summer courses, <laughs> and I finished my year of anatomy through the summer and was uh, allowed to come to the Rolf Institute in the fall. So I, I got right after it because that anatomy uh, was, you know, yeah, I think we did it in what, 10 weeks, a whole semester. And it was, I was working eight hours a day just to get through those courses. And you did it for about 30 years, right? 30 plus years? I did it for 30 years. And Jay, I, I think it's the one of the most satisfying things I could have done in my life. I got to help a lot of people who uh, weren't finding help with traditional, you know, physical therapy and such. But I, uh, I truly enjoyed it. And, uh, uh Kind of just retired a couple of years ago. And you, you dabbled before that. You also dabbled in some coaching, right, in Connecticut before you moved. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. I, I coached for seventeen years. Um, fairly soon after I was done with baseball, I was doing Babe Ruth, the guys that were you know nine through twelve or something like that. Then I moved up to thirteen to fifteen, and then I got eight years at the high school level. My last eight years of co coaching at Greenwich High School. Yeah, Craig, and all the alumni I've spoken to, you probably have the most unique hobby. You fly radio-controlled planes. You know, you move to Florida, and you go to friends uh, a couple of times a week in Naples, and you, ha you have dog fights with these planes. Tell me, you built them yourself? I mean, how did you get into that? Uh, well, about a year before I left Connecticut and retired down here, some one of my friends got me into flying planes up there. And when I came down here, I searched out, the clubs and found one in Naples. And uh, basically, we've got three or four guys that will dogfight. And what we do is I make these planes out of this Depron foam. They do about 100 miles an hour. And we actually go up in the air and try to run into each other. And uh, we, you know, peeps, some people are aces and some people aren't. If you get five kills, <laughs> like in wartime, you're an ace. And uh, uh, we have a few aces, but. Uh, we have such a good time. The planes are usually destroyed, uh, but the the innards, the uh, the, elect the electronics, the batteries, the motors, the servos, those are usually in good shape. So all I have to do is build another plane, which costs me about $20, and there we go again for some more dogfighting. I've made about 84 of those in the last, really. oh gosh, three and a half years. I was going back to some old press guides, and you know, I don't know whether I made this up or not, because when your buyer would say, one of his goals, you you went to sailing back then, was to sail around the world. Do you ever, you never did that, did you? No, I never did. I, I stayed in the sailing, though, and found out I was more of a day sailor. <laughs> I, I still sailed quite a bit and ended up uh, owning a few boats, but uh, um, we didn't go out for more than a week at a time. You never, and, you never made it around the world in 80 days? Uh, well, no, no, we didn't. No, we, huh? uh, I chartered boats in the BVIs and the Grenadines and Bahamas, but that was only for a week. <laughs> well, hey, Craig, I want to thank you for your time. You know, when I'm on partial to the 1918, that was my first year. Yes. We didn't win a lot of games, but we had a lot of fun. You guys were always good to me. and uh, I appreciate your time, and I hope to speak to you soon. Thanks for helping out, my friend. Take care, Dave. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.